Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from New Jersey, from Cat Swamp Road. And it uh, looks like uh, snow today. We were supposed to get some snow, but now they're saying no. But it's just uh, it's a nice winter day. It's overcast and uh, not terribly overcast. There's no wind. It's, pro- it's I think the last time I looked, it's like 33 degrees. So it's not too bad. And... Uh, I don't know, there's something nice about about these slightly overcast days this time of year. seems very, uh, almost in preparation to Christmas, right? And it's hard to believe, but Christmas will be this Saturday. So uh, this show will drop a couple of days before Christmas, and I don't know when you will listen to it, but uh, I do have a special Christmas message for you at the end of this episode of Idle Chatter, and then I will also do my new year's message and every year since i've started this show i've done a a special new year's message independently of the idle chatter podcast so god willing i will be able to do that again and i will have that post on new year's day and that is my my prayer and my wish for you in my audience in the coming year so hopefully you will be able to get a chance to listen to that. You don't have to listen to it on January 1st. It doesn't time out. So that is, um, it'll be up there and uh, God willing, it'll be an inspiration to you because that's what I feel that this show is all about. Not only a transfer of knowledge, but to be an inspiration. I feel that's my mission statement to try to do whatever I can to inspire people to in their lives, in their walk with God in their mindset and not that i am any better or smarter than anyone else but i just feel that uh you have to do whatever we could do to inspire someone and you could inspire someone you don't have to have a podcast or a radio show you could just in your workplace in church in the stores he's a complete stranger that your attitude and your mindset and oftentimes just a smile will be enough to inspire that person to have a better day so I think that is the essence of life, what it's all about, right? But I also want to give a shout out to Mr. Donald Jeffries from Danbury, Texas. That is a Danbury, Connecticut, but I didn't know there's a Danbury, Te- Texas. So I have a pin in my map in Danbury, Texas with Donald Jeffries' name on it. And he is a new listener to the Farm Machinery Digest radio show excuse me, on Sirius XM, channel 147, Rural Radio. So I don't know whether he's, he may have started to listen to the podcast, but regardless, I want to give him a shout out. And also, I invite anyone else that is listening to please send me a email at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com. Excuse me, I, 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 that's terrible. I don't know what, what happened to my throat here. So uh, I guess that's the uh, the pitfalls of, of I was going to say live radio, but live podcasting. Terrible, unbelievable. So I don't know why you listen to this guy, this guy from Cat Swamp Road. But anyway, uh, so Mr. Jeffries, welcome aboard to becoming a hot rod farmer. And as I started to say before I got off track, is that I would love to hear from you. So just send me an email at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and let me know where you hail from. You could tell me about you, about your operation. You could tell me what you do. You could tell me nothing. Just tell me where you hail from. And I know Mr. Jeffries has two Fords. I believe it's a 2016 or 2017 uh, diesel pickup truck, and he has an older Ford diesel tractor. So I he put that in his note to me. And let me see what else I wanted to tell you. I have a little bit of crimp notes here. And uh, oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, I I know it's a couple of days before Christmas, as I said. But you know, please, if you didn't go to the website, my website, farmmachinerydigest.com and look at the Christmas Buyer's Guide for 2021. There's a lot of, uh, what I feel, very good tools there, pieces of equipment that you could use in your farm shop or or, or a, a person that you know that is a hot rod farmer can use that. And so look that over and also keep in mind that the value of those gifts to the hot rod farmer in your life or yourself do not end on December 26th. 
So you may want to look that over and uh, and check that out and see what's what's going on there. But you do have to go to my website to see the article. You don't have to go to my website. So if you if you listen to my podcast through some other platform, then that's fine. But you would not see the article, so you only be getting the bacon without the eggs. But also keep in mind that on my website currently it's not any place else yet. Are the back episodes of Farm Machinery Digest Radio. So you may want to check that out. I would be honored if you did and gave it a listen. And you don't need any serious XM subscription for that. It'll just be there. It'll be it's the radio show turned into a podcast after the fact, if that makes sense. And let me see. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the other day I took a ride. I call it a mental health ride, a mental health trip. But there's a, a, a beautiful lake. It's... Um, well, it's Montour Preserve. It's Lake Chillicothe, I believe, it's, and it's out in Pennsylvania. It's about 130 miles here from the farm, and I've mentioned it before. And lots of times I'll take a ride out there, and usually when my wife is not working, we'll go out there in the summertime, and uh, there's a nice farmer's little market, farm market. They're not a farmer's market, a farm market, and we they have very good salads. It's called uh, Burkholder's. I always call it the wrong name. And I know I have some listeners right in that neck of the woods. And uh, they, I, I get a salad or a sandwich and we go over to the lake. And it's a man-made lake. Uh, they dammed the river because there's a power plant. There used to be a PPL power plant, Pennsylvania Power and Light. But they sold it. It seems that PPL sold all their power plants. I don't know. And I don't know what's going on is in the side to this in the world is that nobody nobody wants to be in any business. They just want to make money, right? Let's sell everything and let somebody else do that. And I know, for instance, in the auto industry, they all got out of the glass business. So almost every car manufacturer doesn't make their own glass anymore. But yet they, they buy the glass. So I don't know. It's a crazy world. But this this park there, it's called Montour Preserve. It's gorgeous. And I've said this before on the show in the past, and it's not a park park. It's like more like a nature preserve. So I took a ride out there uh, the other day and really, really enjoyed it. It was nice. I didn't leave here till later than I wanted. It's about, eh, I'd say, two and a half hours from the farm, maybe a little bit less, a little bit more, depending upon if you hit, hit a little bit of slow spots. On You take Route 80 and you get off... Um, out there in Pennsylvania, I think it's exit 213. It's about 10 or 12 miles off of, uh, maybe not 12 miles, about 10 miles off of the exit there. But anyway, um, I ended up leaving a little bit later than I wanted to, but that was fine. I had to send out some emails and what have you for business. And then I got out there and uh, went and had lunch. We went to Burkholder's and bought a salad and went to the lake. And they have picnic tables there. And it was about 31 degrees, 32 degrees. It was over. It was overcast also. But I'm not laughing because it was just really, I don't know, that that these late fall days, I, I particularly have always liked them since I was a kid when they were overcast like that. The air is crisp. I don't know, there's something, uh, I don't want to say mysterious about it with Christmas coming in. It's just nice. Just nice. So, um I was out there for about only for about two hours because uh, I had to turn around to come home because I wanted to take care of my chickens and the animals and well the animals the cats and the chickens and we feed the deer and the raccoons before it got dark so but it was great it was a great time I really enjoyed it got 47 I think 47.4 miles per gallon which wasn't too bad on the old Fiesta 200 2000 miles and uh just it was just nice getting away just nice to get away and uh not not listen to the radio and not do anything and go for a walk and go out there and i take a nice walk along the lake there and it's just just really really nice but it was no literally no one there no one in the whole the whole park it was i was the only car there i was the only one there and uh, in two hours i saw two cars go two cars go by two ford pickup trucks f350 and f150 so that's all good with me right I love cars, but I don't like, I like to see roads with no cars on them. So really, really enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, I recommend that to you, not to go to Lake Chillicothe, but oftentimes in life we need to, um, to get into our crow's nest. And if you read my blog, maybe you read it a while back, but 
you know, back in the sailing, the days of the sailing ships, they used to have a crow's nest. And people used to think that the crow's nest was to look for land. And obviously they would send, the, the captain would send somebody up there to, to get a bird's eye view, no pun intended. But the main, re- the main reason for the crow's nest back in the sailing ship days was to take a compass reading because what they found out was that oftentimes, depending upon the cargo that was on the ship, is that the cargo had the potential of influencing the compass. So the compass that the captain had could be skewed by the cargo on the ship. So what they would do, what he would do, was send a sailor up into the crow's nest each day to take a compass reading and then yell the compass reading down to the captain so he could calibrate his compass because as I said, some they found out that some that some cargoes would skew the compass, and they'd be off course, and uh, that was a, that was a problem. So I coined the phrase, whatever, whatever it's worth. I mean, I'm taking credit for it, but I shouldn't. Was that get up and get out into your crow's nest? And so, in other words, get away from everything in life. Get away from, you know, we all need to get away from stuff and just go away and and, and center our, you know, recal- recalibrate our compass. So that's why I call these mental health rides, is that I go for a ride out there. I'm away from the farm. I'm away from everything. Away from business. Away from emails. Away, away from it all. And I get into my crow's nest and. Uh, and it's just so rejuvenating that I love it. It's fantastic. So if you don't have a crow's nest, then I suggest that you should find your crow's nest. And for me, my crow's nest is doing something like that, going for a long ride, going out to the lake, going out to a dirt road on a farm, parking my car and walking down a dirt road. Your crow's nest is maybe something else, and that's fine. But just recognize that lots of times in life you need to get away and get into your crow's nest because when you come back, you could focus and you could look at things clearly and all of a sudden it brings a certain level of clarity to everything. And even, you know, when you're working on machinery, right? You have, you're have you working on machinery and whatever, a car, a truck, engine, tractor, you know, the bolt don't want to go in. And you say, what the hell is going on? You can't figure something out. You're trying to put whatever, whatever it may be and it's just fighting you and fighting you and fighting you. And then you say, hey, I'm going to walk away from it. And you walk away from it, whether it's for a day, whether it's for an hour, whether it's for 10 minutes. It usually has to be enough time for you to to uh, regroup mentally, right? And then you come back and all of a sudden, whoop, that bolt that you fought for three hours doesn't goes right in and you're all done. So that's another way of getting into your crow's nest. But when you work your machinery, but lots of times in life, you just need to get into your crow's nest. So that's what I did. I was in my crow's nest and... Uh, excuse me, drove five hours for two hours of crow's nesting, brightest thing in the world. When I came home, back to the farm, I felt like I was away for a week. So that is that. And on today's show, uh, what I am going to talk about is why I feel, and I'm going to hopefully make a convincing argument, why I feel that you should invest in a scanner for your 1996 or newer vehicle, which is kind of frightening, because 1996, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> almost 30 years ago, right? 25 years ago. So uh, so in essence, from 1996 on up, why you should invest in a scanner. So that is what we're going to discuss today. And then we have a letter, and uh, this oh, from, from Mr. Clark Huston, Huston, H-U-S-T-O-N, Huston. And he is asking me a deadly question about what pickup truck do I think that he should buy. So, Mr. Huston, I am going to answer your question without answering it, right? Sounds like a lawyer. Answer your question without answering. So, that is going to be our letter. And sadly, still did not do the toolbox test. So, uh, sorry about that, but I did not do that toolbox test yet, and I promise to get those back in action and up to date so that we can move forward with that. So uh, without any further ado, let's start to talk about why I feel that you should invest. And remember, the word is invest, not purchase. Invest because an investment in anything in life, an investment, you come you come to the table with an expectation of a return on your investment, a return on the money you spent. With a purchase or buying something, you expect nothing but a bill. So this is an investment. So why you should invest in a scan tool? 
So we're going to, I'm going to start and go backwards a little bit and then bring you up to date on that and give you some idea of what you could use it for. You ready? So hopefully you enjoy that. Now, I bought my first scan tool. Oh, God, I'll be showing my age. In the early 1980s when I worked in the Buick dealer, when I was a mechanic in the Buick dealer, Reese Buick out in Long Island, New York. And they were a single-line Buick dealer. used to sell... 250 Buicks a month, which were were a lot of cars, a lot of cars. And that sadly, uh, I don't think you could sell 250 of anything a a month now. So, um, but we were full-line Buick dealer, and Buick was was a full-line car, not truck, obviously, car manufacturer. Of course, we had everything from the Skyhawk, little front-wheel drive Skyhawk, up at the up all the way up to the Riviera, and then and the Park Avenue. Excuse me, the Metro. Excuse me. So, uh, Park Avenue luxury cars, and uh, we had front wheel drive and rear wheel drive cars. And back then, no one wanted SUVs or had SUVs. Or that was the the domain of the the car truck manufacturers like Chevy, GMC, and, and Ford. So there were no Buick trucks or Oldsmobile trucks. Or today, they get everything is trucks, right? Which it's a discussion for another day. But anyway, so I, I was a mechanic. I got a job as a mechanic. Then I ended up doing all the drivability issues. And I've said this before. And then what had happened was that the way, now General Motors was really the catalyst for engine management. I, I would say for what we consider standard fare in diagnostics on engine management systems. Because back then you had the the, well, four car manufacturers. You had the General Motors, you had Ford Motor Company, which was the Mercury and Lincoln. You had Chrysler, which was uh, Chrysler, Dodge, and Plymouth Imperial had already gone. Well, they still had Imperial, but they had that one Imperial, which was quite a nice looking car. But for all intents and purposes, it was the three brands. And then you had the uh, AMC, which stood by itself. And you had the, the imports. And at that particular point, you had um, Toyota. Well, it was, it was well. It was I don't know if it was it was going it was going from Datsun to Nissan, <laughs> and uh, I think and you had some Mitsubishi's and some Isuzu's, and you had Honda, obviously. I think and you had Mazda. You had a number of imports, but they really didn't have much penetration in the market. So, but what had happened is that General Motors came out with their computer command control system for 1981 model year, which was the feedback carburetor. So it was a carburetor with a mixture control solenoid that was that was a part of the carburetor was operated by the ECU, ECM. They used to call it the ECM back then, engine engine control module. Then they kind of industry kind of embraced the term ECU. And what General Motors did is they they invented the serial data stream. So they had a connector underneath the dashboard, which was called the ALDL connector, which stood for assembly line diagnostic link. And using a special tool called a scan tool, you would be able to plug into that and you could, e- the best way I used to teach it was to eavesdrop on the conversation that the engine is having with the sensors and the sensors and ECU is having back with the engine. Now, F- Ford, Chrysler, and AMC also had a feedback carburetor system and was able to control the mixture, but they did not have the serial data line. So you were not able, there was no plug underneath the dashboard or any place in the vehicle that you could plug into and eavesdrop on this conversation. So you either had to be, to check something, you had to break into the circuit or you have to use what they call the breakout box which put the ecu and ford was big on breakout boxes it put the ecu in series with this box and then it had pins whatever 96 pins cavities uh well actually pins they were female um female electrical connection plugs and you would take the voltmeter so you'd look in the diagnostic routine and say okay if you want to check i'm making up pin locations if you want to check the tps output on this crown victoria all right you go with a 302 you go with let's say put the positive lead in pin 78 and then the negative lead in pin one which would have been a common ground for all of the sensors 
and then you would read the voltage there. Whereas General Motors made it very, very simple. You plugged it underneath the dashboard. You didn't have to open a hood. You didn't have to take anything apart. You put the power cord for the scan tool into the cigarette lighter and uh, would be powered up and you'd be able to read all of the data, the data stream, which you could do with a, like I said, with a breakout box on a different brand, but it was very arduous. You had to look to see where the pins are. This either, they were all different style scanners. Some of them had a, had a button where you toggle up and down to different, uh, to different, different parts of the data stream it was called serial s-e-r-i-l data because it was on a series circuit line and um you don't have to be looking at a book and find different pins and what have you very very convenient very it was a wonderful it is a wonderful it was a wonderful design is a wonderful design and that actually became the impetus for obd2 those were considered obd1 which is onboard diagnostics first generation but then it became obd2 for 1996 on up and that's why in the beginning of the show i said from 1996 on up because from obd2 that's when pickup trucks vans cars became had to had to have to meet the obd2 standards onboard diagnostics second generation and what the federal government did was they made everybody copy in some without patent infringements obviously but copy the theory of general motors giving from obd1 giving you providing serial data with a plug-in connector underneath the dashboard that people still call today assembly line diagnostic link but that was a general motors term it's really called the obd2 connector so and it had to have common pins and to a certain degree all manufacturers whether it was toyota or chevrolet or honda or porsche had to use the same common language for part of their data stream so so if you bought a scanner from 1996 on up for the most part most of them will read the majority of obd2 data that the government mandated as the minimum level of data that has to be supplied. Now, after that, you would need a specialized tool, and usually that was application-specific to the manufacturer, or they did have tools, they do have tools that are available that have a lot more capability. And what I mean by capability means it gets you deeper into the data stream, deeper into the ECU. But those are thousands and thousands of dollars whereas you could buy for maybe under $200, a pretty decent little scanner. And that's the one I'm suggesting for you to buy. Not the $5,000 one from Snap-on, excuse me, or other companies that make them, but the, the, the little, I'll say generic, that reads the, that reads the generic data. So it'll give you a majority of the data stream, and which will give you coolant temperature, it'll give you oxygen sensor voltage, it'll give you timing, things of that nature, it'll give you the ability to read trouble codes, and the trouble code will be identified, not just saying code 47, it would be identified, whatever, making this up, code 47, throttle position sensor low. So we would be identify that, and it'd give you the ability to erase trouble codes. So the first reason why I say that you should invest in a scanner is because it'll give you access to some to a certain level of serial data, not everything, but a lot more than you have right now. And it'll give you the ability to to read a trouble code if your service if the service engine soon light comes on, and it will also give you the ability the ability to uh, erase a trouble code. So that's all good good things to have in your toolbox if you're the hot rod farmer, because you could arguably have a trouble have the the service engine soon light come on in one of your vehicles and right now you're completely blind you have no idea what it's for what it's about and what have you so at least you'd have an idea then in the common protocol would be if the service engine soon light comes on this from back even in the old days 40 years ago is that you would uh, erase that trouble code and see if it can if it comes back if it comes back a second time, then it used to be considered valid because you could have a set of circumstances, some sort of anomaly that happens or the engine hiccups or it goes underneath some power wires and gets whacked with some EMI and it sets a trouble code and the trouble code really is invalid. So so that is so that is the crux, to, well, the foundation of why you should have a scanner. Now, the thing is that I will admit to you that if you're new to this and you invest in a scanner that a majority 
excuse me, a majority of the data that you will be able to read on it will make no sense. So you'll say, what, what, what does this mean? Because you have to have a further level of education, uh, exposure of training. I'm calling that education to be able to un- interpret the data. But you first need to, if you want to learn how to write, to write, you first have to have a pencil in your hands. So the first tool, this is your pencil. You first have to be exposed to this data. But on this show today, what I want to do is I want to pick out a couple of different areas that with the knowledge you have now, you the scanner will be able to help you if that if a problem comes up. So, and then from there on, you could learn what the how to interpret the data by taking classes, by reading. Um, there, there's a lot of different ways you could go there, but we first are going to use this tool for its basics. So, as I said already, is that the value, and and I'm saying $200 or under. Uh, don't spend more than that. And there's, and you could shop around, there's different brands. And what, what I do, do want to tell you about, about these scanners is that every scanner is not going to have the same capability. So, even though for that price point, they'll have minimum capability, capabilities, meaning a minimum amount of data it's going to allow you to access but you'll have, let's say, brand X gives you, I'm making up number, 47 data points, and brand Y only gives you 32 data points, all right? So there'll be commonality among them. So you, what you may want to do is do some research before you spend your money on one and see, you usually go to a company's website or speak to someone and say, I have a, uh, you could tell them, well, I have, you know, three Ford vehicles, and, or I have a Ford vehicle, a Chevy, and a Ram, and these are the years, and what data will you give me on these particular vehicles? And the company should be able to tell you what data you will be able to get from those. They may say, we'll give you 27 different items on the Ford, we'll give you 19 on the Ram, and we'll give you 32 on the Chevy, whatever, I'm making up numbers. So this way you know what you're getting, and, and, and you could ask them. So do your due diligence. I mean, just be a wise shopper. And I think that's one of the problems today. People, they want to buy stuff online. And I'm not saying they never bought anything online, but they they don't want to do their due diligence. They want to spend their money and then they want to find, complain that, that what they got was not what they expected. So it's up to you to do, to perform a level of due diligence to make you happy. Because if you have, let's say, three Fords and a Ram, you're only concerned with what it reads on there. You're not going into the repair business. So whatever it does on a Hyundai, that scanner could mean meaningless to you. It has to it has to get you a certain level of data for your applications that you have. So as I said, I'll recap on this foundational part is that the benefit of you having a scanner is that you're going to be able to read any trouble code if it does come up and, and, and identify. And keep in mind that a trouble code is a circuit code. So if it comes up with an oxygen sensor code, that doesn't mean you run out and buy an oxygen sensor. It may end up needing an oxygen sensor, but that's it's not a, a code. And people and even experienced mechanics, they fall into that trap and they fall into a big time big time with farm equipment now also keep in mind i'm not laughing this is not going to work on your farm equipment there's dedicated softwares and scan tools for for your combine so this is only going to work on obd2 onboard road vehicles it's not going to work on a semi it's going to work on light duty vehicles so for pickup trucks down to uh, a car all right so anything else it's not going to work on so you know, you could read trouble codes, you could erase trouble codes, and now you could get this serial data. And what I want to do is I want to highlight a couple of areas where even without any experience that you will be able to use that scan tool to of value. And then the first thing that I like to look to tell you to look at is the coolant temperature, excuse me, and intake air temperature because let's start with the coolant temperature very easily and remember no matter what brand you have now from 1996 up forward is that this ob they call it an obd2 connector instead of an aldl that's going to be underneath the dashboard someplace it's going to be in the passenger compartment some some vehicles have it in the console you have to look in your owner's manual to identify where it is and you're going to plug this tool in all right so it's you're not going to even have to open the hood but let's say arguably this engine, excuse me, 
you, you, whatever it's in, right, has a temperature gauge and it appears to start to be running hot. Or let's say that you have, a different, I'm just making up different scenarios, but they're valid. Or let's say that, you know, it's wintertime and the heater output doesn't seem to be too good, but you have this, this application has no temperature gauge, only has an overheat light. So the thing is that how would you determine whether the, it, whether it's a problem with the heater system, maybe one of the blend air doors is stuck, and even though you're moving the lever for uh, to, for maximum heat, that the door isn't changing, or maybe the thermostat is stuck open on the car, on the engine, I should say. I'm saying car, but on the engine. So how can you determine this very easily? Well, if you were to take your scan tool and plug it in and go to something called colon temperature and most of them will read it either in fahrenheit or something but it usually has a has a uh i don't know a setup screen you can say oh i want all readings in english system i want all readings in metric so so let's say you so you have it set for english because i'm more familiar with that and and you're looking at the coolant temperature and the coolant temperature is never getting above 150 degrees or 160 degrees and you go oh bingo right that is what my problem is my thermostat is stuck partially open so it never or it, or it never closes all the way so the engine never has the ability to build heat now somebody may be saying in the audience well you know <clears throat> you could do that with an infrared gun with a, a non-contact thermometer and shoot shoot by the thermostat where it is and see what the coolant temperature is and i agree with you a hundred percent and that's a default way to do it and it's a valid way to do it. but if you have a but there's lots of instances where you really can't even get even with the infrared gun to get the beam there accurately because where the thermostat is and also the thing so that's one that's one issue and that requires a lot more effort than plugging in underneath the dashboard because you could plug it underneath the dashboard and you could say all right what i'm going to do now is i'm going to take this car this vehicle down the road and you could and you could and you could watch the coolant temperature. You're not going to be able to take the vehicle down the road and watch the coolant temperature on the highway with the infrared gun underneath the hood. So that is a very 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 valuable tool to have because you could very easily look at it instead of guessing and say, ah, I think maybe the thermostat isn't closing, and that's why this I'm not getting any heat. Or you could look at the coolant temperature and say, hey, you know, the coolant temperature is 192 and you know 192 195 the engine's nice and getting nice and warm and i have no heat now you know that the problem is in the heater system so it's either the heater core is plugged right which i kind of doubt that it's usually one of those blend air doors are stuck or a vacuum hose came off so and you didn't even open a hood yet so you could determine this and that's really where you know it's one of the nice things about a scan tool now another thing that you could come to is keep in mind that a modern engine because these are all fuel injected a modern engine is going to look at the coolant temperature and is going to look at the air temperature the inlet air temperature sometimes they call it air charge temperature and then the inlet air temperature is going to influence and the coolant temperature the way the engine runs so for instance now let's say that the engine is getting to 190 degrees all right but your coolant sensor is saying that it is only getting to to 90 degrees so you can say well how am i going to determine that well you're going to determine that two ways all right number one you may need to use your infrared non-contact thermometer and you may not be able to get to as i said get to the thermostat housing but you could get someplace in the cylinder head and at this particular point you're using the scan tool as a quick way to confirm something or disavow something so you say okay fine that the the uh the scanner is telling me that the engine coolant is only 90 degrees but i have good heat and I have good heat, and I have I go with the infrared gun. Someplace in the water jacket of the sun doesn't be exactly, and it's reading 183 or 187. Well, it's not reading 90. So now, at that particular point, you know that the coolant sensor that is sending information to the ECU to control the fuel delivery, to control the uh, 
this spark advance is skewing and it needs a, the engine needs a new coolant sensor conversely let's say you go out in the winter and this engine doesn't want to start it cranks but it doesn't want to start and you say geez it seems like it's not getting enough fuel well you do you, you take your scan tool and you plug it into the obd2 connector and you do key on engine off and you know that when you went outside that it was whatever eight degrees outside and then the coolant sensor which is going to be used for cranking fuel and for fuel enrichment and for spark advance as i said is reading 72 degrees so you know you have an issue with the coolant sensor or the wiring whereas that would be impossible i wouldn't say excuse me it wouldn't be a hundred percent impossible for you to determine but it's so quick and so easy and you're not violating any wires you're not it's not eight degrees outside and you're trying to take off a connector and back probe a connector to see what the what the resistance of the coolant sensor is and 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 a coolant sensor and those those temperature sensors on engines are thermistors so they're exact opposite of a resistor as they get colder their resistance increases where a resistor when it gets hotter its resistance increases so very quickly you plug you plug this you plug the scanner in and boop you look at hey this is what the problem is the the engine thinks the ecu thinks that's 90 degrees outside instead of nine degrees and it's not giving enough fuel and that's why it's not starting so that's a that's another quick quick you know that that tool will be worth worth its weight in gold because in literally take you longer to go go to your toolbox and get it then plug it and plug it in underneath the, under the dashboard or wherever it is and check it out so another thing that uh that you would want that you would want to look at which is so we're basically talking about temperatures here the same thing with air charge temperature so on a cold on i shouldn't say a cold day when the engine is cold at ambient temperature nearly ambient temperature then the coolant temperature and the liquid temperature and the air charge temperature sensor should read the same so you go out in the morning let's see let's see you have a problem with this engine your wife's like geez you know it kind of runs rough or it stalls or it does this or it's whatever putting the check engine let service engine soon like people still call check engine and you know to have a problem with it in the morning or a cold morning well key on engine off when the, the vehicle sat overnight the the liquid temperature and the air charge temperature sensor should read the same within a degree or two so you put the key on engine off right and you know hey you know it's whatever eight degrees outside and the the liquid temperature is reading 18 degrees well that's close enough of course that's some residual heat from from the engine running night before but you look at the air charge temperature reading which should be within one or two degrees of the liquid temperature a couple of degrees and that's reading minus 42 or it's reading 157 and they say okay bingo there's my problem so like i said by applying a, a little critical thinking here even though you're not familiar with terms like block learn multiplier and 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 what have you you don't have to go crazy you're using this tool for a couple hundred dollars of great of great value same thing as vehicles today from well these i shouldn't say these obd1 obd2 obd2 vehicles had vehicle speed sensors so if you look at it and you and you're having an issue let's say with the cruise control or you're having an issue with the torque converter clutch well one of the things that you would want to do is take your scanner take the vehicle for a ride and look if the speedometer is saying 40 miles an hour then the, the ecu should say 40 miles an hour 39 miles an hour 41 what have you so you're using it as a comparator as a quick and easy and non non-offensive meaning that you're not you, you you're not violating any type of the wiring to try to get it reading and you don't even get your hands dirty <clears throat> and so but another thing that i would like for you to look at on that so so we looked at air charge temperature we looked at coolant temperature all right the other thing that i'd want you to look at is throttle position sensor so a throttle so it's going to have a throttle every system is going to have a throttle position sensor it's going to work between zero and five volts based upon the data stream on that particular vehicle you may read throttle as a percentage you may read throttle as a voltage all right so if it's 4.9 volts that's close to five volts that's wide open throttle if it's a you know <clears throat> low value 0.5 or something that's closed throttle at idle uh 
or it could read, you know, it could read in percentage. That's why I said you want to look at the scan tool before you buy it and ask the company for your particular vehicle. Not that it makes any difference, it's just a matter of, of you know, knowing, it's like, you know, going up to Canada, so the speed limit's 100 kilometers, so it's 62 miles per hour. You come down to the United States, it's 65 miles an hour, so somebody from Canada knows that he's going to go about 100 kilometers and he's going to be legal here. So that, and that's what you're using this for. But the same thing is that, you know, you could have a, a modern transmission could have a lot of issues because it thinks that the throttle angle input is wrong and not necessarily, it's not going to necessarily put a trouble code in. That's, I've spoken about this many times before on the show at farm equipment, what have you, is that the, the, the trouble codes, and whether it's a combine or whether it's a Cadillac, are based upon an algorithm and it's a it's a comparative well if this is this then this should be this but there's a threshold there so not every issue is going to create a or evoke or set a trouble code so if you're looking at this and you're saying well geez this transmission is acting funny or something well yet yeah, the problem may very very realistically be in a transmission but two of the things that the transmission is going to look at the shift because these are all integrated systems and that was going to be the throttle angle well, three things, the throttle angle, the engine RPM, and the road speed. So if you go and you you check all of this with the scanner, because you could drive down the road with it and say, well, my throttle angle seems more or less correct, right? Number 10% or 20% throttle, the road speed seems to be accurate, and the, the engine speed seems to be accurate, and the transmission is acting funny, then you know that the problem is in the transmission. So like I say, it's a diagnostic tool. But the other thing that I want you to look at is and from 1996 on up to call it most of the time like i said you have to look at the nomenclature that each scan tool uses and each manufacturer uses but it's all same you know uh, tomato tomato type of deal it's you know close enough to being the same it's reading the same thing they may change the verbiage a little bit but what you want to do is you want to look at long-term fuel trim and on every <clears throat> And every fuel injection system, they're going to use multiple oxygen sensors. All right, but the purpose of the oxygen sensor is to act as an auditor, as a confirmation of what the air fuel ratio is. And then based upon what the oxygen sensor is telling the ECU, it's going to determine the injector pulse width, how much fuel it's going to administer. And at one particular point, if the oxygen sensor keeps saying it's lean, it's lean, it's lean, and the ECU adds approximately about 25% fuel, meaning 25% over what it thinks it should have, lengthens the pulse width, or takes the pulse width away 25%, and that's controlled, that's called an out-of-control fuel condition, and it's going to set a service engine soon light, and it's going to go to a default rating. But why now what happens is with long-term long-term fuel trim, it's going to tell you whether it's either over the long-term adding fuel or subtracting fuel. And what it's adding it or subtracting it from is what the base calculation is inside the ECU. So if the manufacturer calculates for this given load, this engine speed, these conditions are arguably that the engine should be should be fueled happily, all right, with two milliseconds, two thousandths of a second injector pulse time, opening time. And now it's going to have to, and now the ECU is adding fuel because the oxygen sensor is telling it it's lean. So now it's going long-term fuel trim, trim meaning that it's an adjustment, adjustment from the, from the base calculation, and it's adding fuel, then that's a very good indicator of one or two things well one thing if it's adding fuel let me let me start with that and well two things but we'll start with with the first aspect of it is that that the engine could possibly have a series of vacuum leaks not a massive vacuum leak but a vacuum leak that is enough to start to 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 lean out the mixture and or more commonly a degraded oxygen sensor and an oxygen sensor degrades when you have a uh, uh, over time when it gets coated. It could be from burning antifreeze. It could be from the engine running. It, it, a lot of cold starts, what have you, just from from being used. But when an oxygen sensor degrades, its output voltage drops. And when its output voltage drops, that is telling the ECU that the engine is actually lean. 
so leaner than 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 it is because the output voltage is dropping. So it'd be like using a torque wrench that's out of calibration. So the bolt torque spec is 60 foot-pounds, but you're, but you're actually putting 120 foot-pounds on it, all right, because the wrench is out of calibration. You say, Why the hell am I snapping all the bolts? When you're snapping all the bolts, I'm doing it right to torque, but the meter is wrong, right? So the same thing happens with an oxygen sensor. And the telltale sign for a good diagnostician is going to be that the long-term fuel trim is off and adding fuel. So if you look at it and you say, well, hey, you know, I'm adding 10% fuel, I'm adding 15% fuel, what have you. And uh, there's, that there's no air leaks that you were to able for, to find or the or no other condition. There are other conditions. Fuel pressure could be low, could be an air leak, right? But most commonly, it is that the oxygen sensor itself has become coated and is skewing to a lower voltage and tricking the ECU into thinking that the that the mixture is leaner than it actually is. So not only will this cause you to cause the engine to use more fuel, all right, but more importantly, what's going to do is this richer mixture over time, depending upon how rich it goes, is going to wash the fuel off, the, wash the, the oil off the cylinder wall because in a port injection system you, or direct injection, you bring the fuel in right there. And too rich an air fuel ratio is going to wash the, the oil off the cylinder wall and you're going to have excessive ring wear and cylinder ball wear and also be polluting the engine oil with gasoline. So what I like to do is I like to look at my long-term trim and as a diagnostic, as a, I don't want to say as a diagnostic, as a, um, you know, as a checkup. So I'll plug it into my, into my Ranger or plug it into my Fiesta. My wife's because oh, long-term trim is I'm not adding fuel or subtracting fuel. So that's a good indication that everything is pretty good, that the oxygen sensor is good. There's no air leaks. There's no, the injectors are clean, what have you. Now, conversely, you could have long-term fuel trim that's taking fuel away. And it's, and it's instead of a two milliseconds of pulse width using that, as I, as I said before, it's now 1.8. So the long-term fuel trim will say, we're always correcting this. So this would be akin to, let's say you riding down the road and I'm riding down the road with you and you have a wheel that's pulling to the left. So that means you have the steering wheel always cocked to the right. So you're going straight, <coughs> excuse me, but the steering wheel's cocked to the right because you're fighting that wheel it's dragging to the left and i'm saying to you hey why come you always got the wheel and it's always like that i'm always going to have to have it to the right to go straight well that's what the long-term fuel trim is telling you so if it the long-term fuel trim is cutting back the injector pulse width then that's a good indication of a crankcase loaded with gasoline that's a good indication of a, a an injector that's dripping so even though the injector is also shut off it's still dripping like a faucet in a sink and fueling the engine that also could be a indication of a lot of carbon deposits on the intake valve so if you have an engine at idle that it's adding fuel and then on at higher speeds it's subtracting fuel that's usually an indication of a lot of intake valve deposits because at low port velocity the carbon deposits in the valve are going to wick in the fuel and then so the ecu is going to have to add fuel to try to satisfy the oxygen sensor and then once you get port velocity up to higher engine speeds it's actually going to just like just like a wind across a field will evaporate the water it's going to not evaporate it's going to pull the wicked in fuel out of the carbon and rich in the mixture so an indication so you'd see you'd see um adding fuel at idle and then you'd see pulling fuel back out at higher engine speeds and that's a very good indication of carbon deposits and it could also be an indication of an injector that has a poor spray pattern because it's going to be a lot more sensitive to a poor spray pattern when the port velocity through the intake manifold is low versus when the port velocity is higher it's going to kind of pull the fuel and tear it apart so like i said all of these things you'll be able to see you'll be able to see with a scan tool and give you a very good idea of what's going on so before we get ready to close here and go to our letter 
is that I you don't want to recapsule. We can look at we could look at temperature, liquid temperature, incoming air temperature. We could use that to diagnose a heater, diagnose a thermostat, a whole bunch of other things. We're going to look at vehicle speed. We're going to look at throttle angle. That's going to diagnose that could diagnose an EGR condition. That could diagnose a transmission condition. And we're also going to look at fuel trim. Then it'll say either say fuel trim or long term fuel trim. And each one of these scanners will have some semblance of an instruction manual, and it'll give you it'll give you a uh, uh, what do you call it a um, a glossary so it'll tell you okay long term they they, they they may call it just fuel trim so what have you but you get to you have to, it's like any tool you have to get to to understand it and to read the manual a little bit and see what's going on but those are areas those areas right there would be more than worth the investment in the scanner and they're also good so hey you know when you uh you you have any of your vehicles for service you're changing the oil on me doing this you're doing whatever you know up for service plug the scanner in because <clears throat> It's going, like I said, so simple. And you say, okay, fuel trim looks good. This looks good. This looks good. Everything, you know, these couple items look good. The coolant temperature looks more or less right because what you will find is that most of the time that a scanner, not a scanner, a sensor on an EFI system is going to skew over time and it's going to be just like the, like gray hair is going to sneak up on you. You look in the mirror one day and all of a sudden you got gray hair. You say, where the hell did that come from? I don't know, you know, well, it was day to day, but you didn't notice it. Or you come into the field and you say, geez, you, I never remember having these weeds in the field or uh, even here on our farm, we're having not the exact opposite, but over the years, the hedgerow and the fence, not the fence row, the hedgerow and the bushes are growing in and say, geez, this field is getting smaller. I got to cut these bushes back. What the heck's going on? I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. And the same thing with, with a sensor. Your sensor will start to skew over time. And by when you change the oil, you do a service on a, on a, on a vehicle to, that you have, <clears throat> plug the scanner and check these couple of things. And then over time, you will start to learn to look beyond those things. And you'll start to recognize, excuse me, when the data is right or wrong. So, thing is that you know a, a big thing in diagnostics is recognition of 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 something and if you never look at it how can you recognize it so if someone when i used to teach this if you god forbid had a blind person and they were born blind they don't know what a girl looks like they don't know what a boy looks like or a woman looks like or a man looks like they may you be they'll be able to discern from their voice and say well that's a and they would learn as a child so that's a woman's voice here or it sounds different than a man's voice or a boy's voice but they wouldn't know what a woman looks like they wouldn't know say well you know i bought a new car my you know my, my car is black they have no idea sadly what black is or what blue is or what white is and the same thing is going to happen in diagnostics lots of times you may not know what's wrong but you know what is but you know what is right and what it's not supposed to be so if you look at the data say well i don't know what's wrong with this but i got long-term fuel trim constantly taking fuel out of this thing wants to take fuel out. i may have drippy injectors i may have i may have too high fuel pressure i may have you know, gasoline in the crankcase all right and 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 so like i say it's it's a very good indicator is it you know is it a cure-all no is it a tool? Yes. It's a tool that should be in your toolbox on your farm if you have, and, and, and most everybody's got 1996 and newer, right? I mean, so that's almost 20, that's 25, 26 years ago. So the thing is that, and you'll be able to be a worthwhile tool, but you're going to have to use it. You're going to have to start to get familiar with it. And to tell you, too, it's a lot of fun. <clears throat> because you'll be able to drive the vehicle see the dynamics of what's going on with it and if you start with those three or four areas it's going to bring great intrinsic value to your operation and it's also going to be like i say it's it's a, it's a checkup it's one of the elements when you do a checkup when you do service so uh so look into that and check it out but don't spend more than a couple hundred dollars you don't need a five thousand dollar or a fifteen hundred dollar scanner just you know a couple hundred dollars you get you get something pretty good for a couple hundred dollars it's not going to break the bank but you're going to have to use it they're ready so uh if you have any questions on that please feel free to reach out to me at hot rod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and even though we're not having a toolbox test today what we're going to do is we got to bring texture benefits in because everybody loves come on in texans you're a hot rod man
rock man. Yeah, I'm a hot rock man. Look out, little mama gonna get you. All right, Tex, thank you so much. So thank you for, uh, for bringing us into this letter. So I'm going to read this letter to you, and it is from, um, okay, Clark Huston. He goes, hi, my name is Clark Huston, and I am from Oklahoma. I farm and ranch, but also have a job in town about 40 miles away. So Clark is a busy, busy man. I'm saying that. I am in the market for a new standard cab, one half ton pickup truck at four wheel drive. I would like to know which brand you recommend. The town about 30 miles away has almost every make known to man. Thanks so much. Alrighty. So listen, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, Clark, for writing in. And as I said in the intro of the show, I'm going to answer this without answering it. Now, you know, every half ton pickup truck, four-wheel drive pickup truck is going to be able to do a day's work. And I don't care whether it's a Ford, whether it's a General Motors, whether it's a Ram, I still call it Dodge, or whether it's a Toyota or whether it's a Nissan. So those are the only half ton pickup trucks that are out there, those brands. So the thing is that what you, which is the best, I, that's why I said, I'm going to answer your question without answering it. The, the one that's the best is the one that is best for you. And what and I, in today's competitive marketplace that I would say a lot of products are so close to being the same, but yet in so many ways are completely different. So can they all carry, you know, uh, 2,000 pounds of fertilizer back to the farm? Yes. Can they do this? Yes. Can they do that? Yes. All right. So the thing basis, but the particulars of each vehicle is what, a, is what is going to make or break the deal for you. Now, do some carry 2,000 pounds of fertilizer or whatever and maybe carry a load? I'll say better than others. Yes. I'm not going to deny that but you are going to be the one who has to determine that. So the criteria that I would say to you is when you're looking for a new pickup truck, a 2022 pickup truck, is that first drive each vehicle and drive it in the configuration that you want to buy. Now, it's one of the problems when I do a road test, and I make no bones about it when you listen to my road test, is that the vehicles I get from the press office are not well-suited for a farm. The eighty dollars and $90,000 pickup trucks with, with these wide tires and 22-inch chrome or aluminum wheels and, and leather upholstery and moon roofs and whatever. I'm not saying the truck can't do anything, but it's not really, it's, it, it's you know, it's a, it's a, big truck it's a oh, they're always four-door trucks and you want a standard cab so when it's a four-door it's got a smaller bed it doesn't have the weight capacity it's i'm mean, like the gmc uh denali i had was low slung to the ground i mean so like i say they take them and then they're, they're not really what you would want to use on a farm so but the thing is that for you to drive the truck that you are considering whatever brand with the configuration the cab configuration and the body, I mean, the driveline configuration. So in essence, if you're interested in a Ford and let's say an F-150 and you think that you want the base engine, well, don't drive one with a five liter. Well, you could drive one with a five liter and that's gonna, that'll tell you what the cab is like, but then you're gonna have to drive one with a V space V6 in it so you could see how the transmission shifts, whether it has enough power and what have you. So, that, so that's one of the problems that I have to say is that when you go to a dealer to test drive something in more instances than not, specifically, if you're looking for more a work truck, what I consider a work truck, is that they're very hard to find to test drive today in some way, shape, or form because they want to sell you a $90,000 pickup truck. So you have to do your due diligence and you have to say, well, okay, you know, I'm driving a V6, but it's a four-door. It's not the end of the world. Your truck will be a little bit lighter as a two-door. And, you know, so if it feels pretty good with the V6 as a four-door, it's going to feel better as a two-door because the, because the truck is lighter. The next thing that I would do is make a list of the criteria that you uh, that, that that you cannot live without. Now, for instance, now this may sound ridiculous, but because I have a show on Sirius XM, is that I would want a vehicle that uh, that comes from the factory, even as an option with satellite radio. 
right? Because I, I would, I, it would be prudent for me to be able to listen to my own show. It would be prudent for me to be able to listen to the network I'm on to support them. And believe it or not, a lot of these trucks stay in Stanley, and this is one of my bones I pick with Ford, is that they don't make the satellite radio optional on the base model. So you have to go up to it mid-level, even on their cars. If you want a satellite radio, you've got a Mustang premium. You can't just get a base Mustang and pay extra for a satellite radio. So, you know, make a list of things that you're willing to accept or, or that, that you, that not I should say willing to accept, make a list of things that you must have, all right? So, uh, and then your list is going to be different than mine. Somebody else will say, I don't give a damn about satellite radio. Well, that's fine. The other thing that I would say is I would look at today is that, and sadly, and you're probably going to run into this in all the brands that are half-ton pickup trucks, is that they make the body sit so high, it really does nothing at all for the infield off-road clearance, but the body is so high above the tire that it's very awkward to get anything out of the bed, either from the tailgate or from the side. You put a, whatever, a bag of feed down on the side, you want to lift it up, you drop a screwdriver and you're in a hammer, you want to fix a fence, you can't even reach it unless you're six and a half feet tall. So that's something for you to that's something for you to keep in mind with that also. So look at the vehicle as a as as has as you would use it. Another thing that I uh, have found is, and it's, this is not a deal breaker for me, but you know, a lot some of these vehicles have start stop, which is a pain in the neck. I don't particularly care for it, so it shuts the engine off when you come to a stop, but. If, and if it has start stop, it'll have a button someplace where you could disable it. So look to see how easy it is to disable the start stop. So, you, so like I said, another person would say, I love start stop. But more importantly, what I would do is I would look underneath the hood. Now, granted that, excuse me, these vehicles today are not as serviceable as they were 40 years ago. There's no denying it, but some are worse than others. So I would look underneath the hood with the engine package that you want. So if you're going to buy an F-150 and you, you know, don't look at the at underneath the hood with a 3.5 echo boost, if you're going to buy the base engine, look at the level of serviceability because that's going to be something that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your time you own the vehicle. Even if you do not do your own service, if the vehicle is hard to service, it's going to raise the cost of maintenance. If something goes bad on it, it's going to be harder and more time-consuming to to accomplish that repair, even if you're paying at the dealership or a mechanic. But also, lots of times, and the, the human factor being is that if you look at it, if something is really hard to work on and you can't get your hands in there, you can't do this, you can't do that, even the most, the best mechanic in the world is not going to be able to do as good of a job as if he could work on something. If you're not working blind and you get your hands in there. So so keep that in mind. The other thing that you would want to look at, I mean, obviously there's certain consumer things about the warranty, but they're basically almost all the same today, is that I would look at, you know, do you have a relationship with the dealer? And just like in agriculture, you know, if you have a relationship with your seed dealer, your chemical dealer, uh, some or anybody, relationships go a long way. You know, do you have a relationship with the dealer? For instance, like I have a wonderful relationship with the service department at the Ford dealers that I that I go to. I have zero relationship with the sales department, but I don't care about that because it's a one-time deal. I'm buying a vehicle and that's it. But the service departments, the parts guys, you know, I have a wonderful relationship with them. I don't do, I do my own service, but I could go talk to them and say, hey, you know, how do you get this out? How do you get this bulb out of this stash? But oh, there's a clip over there. You're never going to see it. I'll show you where it is. You know, the parts guys and everything. So that, you know, that is really going to make, make a difference. And then I know I also, and I do this, with farm equipment, but you know you may want to you may want to go to the parts department and make a list of a couple of things and see what the parts cost because and, and it's, it's not really that much different with, with pickup trucks, but you may find a difference. For instance, you may find arguably that an oil filter for the brand X costs twelve dollars, have a brand Y costs thirty two dollars. So. Look at that, you know, keep that all in mind, all right, and make it make a total decision. And obviously you're gonna have to like the vehicle. But 
to tell you the truth, as far as the domestic brands are concerned, the GM, the uh, Ford, and then the well, Stellantis, now Ram, whatever you want to call it, I would say that they're so close in capability that it's going to be those other things that are going to make and break your make and break you is or make and break this the the sale for you whether you want to buy that or not and as far as the toyota tundra is concerned i've had no real experience with them uh some people love them some people don't i haven't road tested a toyota i've road tested a, a nissan uh uh what they call titan which was a pretty nice truck but to tell you the truth i'm to me, it was more of a of a suburban truck than a real farm truck. I know they have a heavy duty. I didn't test that. I tested the half ton, which is what you're interested in. And I mean, to my way of thinking, it may be wrong that any one of the domestic trucks, the Ford, the Ram, or the GM, will outwork a Titan in a real work environment any day. Uh, I think if I were to load a Titan like I load a Ford, that I would bust it in half. But that's my opinion. I may be wrong. So, uh, so who knows? But put that all together. I can't tell you what to, I can't tell you what to buy, or I won't tell you what to buy. I'll tell you what to look for. But most importantly, you know, just like uh, when we were younger, guys, I had a friend of mine, and he would date a girl. So, oh, do you like her? I said, I don't have to like her. I don't have to think she's pretty. I don't have to think anything. You have to like her. You have to think she's pretty. But in essence, those I would stick with one of the domestic brands you know, Ford, General Motors, or Ram, and I think that you will not go wrong with either one of those. So, but, you know, feel free to reach back out to me and, you know, and if you have any questions as you start to, as you start to, start to do your shopping. But as I get to a close today, I want to take this time and I want to wish everyone a blessed, blessed, blessed Christmas. And I want to thank you so much for being in my audience. I want to thank you so much for listening to me and communicating with me. And I, w I wish you all a 2022, well, I wish you all a Christmas that is filled with joy, love, and peace. And I wish you all the blessings, God's blessings for 2022 and beyond. And I just, uh, and I hope that you have the chance to listen to my New Year message. But I would like to close today with not my typical exit music, but a wonderful song, a wonderful hymn that both Charlotte and I love. And it's called In the Bleak Midwinter. And it's just about 30 seconds of it. So listen, have a blessed, blessed, blessed Christmas. And I will talk to you uh, before the new year. And thank you so much for listening. And remember that Christ, our Savior, is the reason for the season. And there's no better gift than the Lord gave us with his son being our Savior. Mm -hmm.